This is about trying to make the Ohio Constitution less susceptible to special interests. Mm. Special interests? Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose or actual citizens? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I'm thinking the latter. I got the feeling that something right. Maybe it's just me. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. I am... From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK People Powered Radio 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Groves, KSO, Eugene's KEPW. Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU in Columbus, Ohio. On WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADRN. Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day for you. On the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites. Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. Uh, progressive ballot initiatives placed by citizens onto the ballot last year in 2022 did exceptionally well on everything from abortion rights to the legalization of marijuana to the expansion of health care. Yes, those measures did well even in so-called red states. When voters have the ability to vote uh, for popular ideas like increases to the minimum wage and uh, expanding Medicaid to their state. Yes, even in Republican-controlled states, those progressive populist ideas tend to do very, very well. And that's especially true in states where Republicans have sort of gerrymandered themselves into seemingly unshakable strongholds in the state legislature. Boy, when, uh, you know, voters get to show up to the polls and vote for something that they really want, well, they really do show up. And <laughs> it's kind of it weird well. yeah. when you let people vote for things that they want, they actually turn out to vote for things that they want. What a concept. Of course, what that now. Hi, Desi Doyen. Hi. Of course, what that now means is that Republicans are therefore gunning for those citizen-initiated ballot measures, and uh, they are attempting to make it more difficult, in fact, to place those measures on the ballot. Of course they are. Or raising the threshold to adopt them uh, by voters. Anywhere actual democracy, in this case, direct democracy, thrives, it seems like Republicans, for some reason these days, want to snuff it out. I can't imagine why. But I suspect my guest, joining me shortly from the Ballot Initiative Strategy Center, 
Uh, I bet she'll be able to imagine why. I bet she has some thoughts on this, especially as progressive successes continue to rise in statewide ballot referenda around the country. With even more on the way in 2023 and 2024, Chris Melody Field Figueredo joins me shortly for that important conversation. But just to kick things off here with some unreservedly satisfying news, I think, at least for me today. Uh, you know, I know it gets frustrating waiting for real accountability for the insipid, disgraced, criminal, twice impeached former president of ours. But maybe this will hold you over at least for a while, at least for today. A judge's blistering and I mean blistering ruling out of a federal court in Florida on Thursday night. Here's part of the background from this 46 page ruling. It was released on Thursday night from Judge Donald Middlebrooks, U.S. District Court judge in the Southern District of Florida, you know, where Donald Trump now lives and where he filed a ridiculous case against Hillary Clinton and a bunch of Trump, well, a bunch of Trump's perceived enemies at the FBI, like James Comey and Andrew McCabe and Peter Strzok and Lisa Page back in March of this past year. The the case supposedly laid out Trump's grievances for how they were all very, very mean to him and they tried <laughs> to destroy him uh, before and after his 2016 election as president of the United States by making what Trump has convinced himself and his supporters were all sorts of scandalous, totally made up, totally false, totally fictional claims about him in what would eventually become Robert Mueller's uh, investigation of Russian interference in the 2016 election and Trump's multiple attempts to obstruct that special counsel probe. Well, everyone other than Hillary in this case uh, has been uh, was replaced uh, in the case by the U.S. government itself as an entity because Comey and McCabe and Strzok, et cetera, had all been working as federal officials at the time uh, at the time that Trump has complaints about them, uh, when Trump pretends that they have done him wrong. Now, the lawsuit was filed last year. It was subsequently tossed out entirely in what Judge Middlebrooks, in his own words, describes as a case that, quote, should never have been brought. But here's just some of the background of this case, which was so ridiculous and so absurd and so factually deficient when it was first submitted that Judge Middlebrooks actually gave Trump's attorney, Alina Haba, instructions to go away and rewrite it to include actual facts and actual allegations against the defendants and resubmit them, uh, resubmit the lawsuit, which in truth was actually quite generous of him. Yeah. So the background from his ruling on Thursday night regarding sanctions sought against Donald Trump and his attorneys by uh, Hillary Clinton begins this way. Uh, plaintiffs initiated this lawsuit on March 24, 2022, alleging that, quote, the defendants, blinded by political ambition, orchestrated a malicious conspiracy to disseminate patently false and injurious information about Donald J. Trump and his campaign, all in the hopes of destroying his life, his political career, and rigging the 2016 presidential election in favor of Hillary Clinton. 
That's the the judge describing what Trump originally was alleging. The very next day, after filing the suit, the judge notes Alina Haba, Mr. Trump's lead counsel, told Fox News' Sean Hannity, quote, You can't make this up. You literally cannot make a story like this up. In fact, it was pretty much all completely made up, by the way. (laughs) And President Trump is just not going to take it anymore. If you're going to make up lies, if you're going to try to take him down, he is going to fight back. And that is what this is. This is the beginning of all of that, Haba told Hannity on Fox News after filing this suit. Very brave. I'm sure in the bargain, as she appeared on Fox, Trump's phony Save America Pack or whatever he's calling it these days saw its donations skyrocket because, you know, he's fighting back. He's not going to take it anymore. And of course, those skyrocketing donations are really the point here, right? Uh, The judge notes she then explained on Newsmax, quote, what the real goal of the suit is, is democracy is continuing to make sure that our elections, continuing to make sure our justice system is not obstructed by political enemies. That cannot happen. And that's exactly what happened. They obstructed justice. They continued the false narrative, this grand scheme that you could not make up to take down an opponent. That is un-American, she told Newsmax. The judge continues on April 20, 2022, less than a month after the complaint was filed, Hillary Clinton moved for dismissal with prejudice. Her motion identified substantial and fundamental factual and legal flaws. Each of the other defendants followed suit, pointing to specific problems with the claims against them. The problems in the complaint were obvious from the start. They were identified by the defendants not once but twice, and Mr. Trump persisted anyway. Despite this briefing and the promise, quote, to cure any deficiency, plaintiff's counsel, that would be Alina Haba, filed the amended complaint on June 21, 2022. The amended complaint failed, the judge writes, to cure any of the defects. Instead, plaintiff added 80 new pages of largely irrelevant allegations that did nothing to salvage the legal sufficiency of his claims. Oh, dear. Oh, dear, indeed. That, even though, as Judge Middlebrooks writes, uh, quote, the amended complaint is 193 pages in length with with 819 numbered paragraphs and contains 14 counts, names 31 defendants, 10 John Doe's described as fictitious and unknown, and 10 corporations identified as fictitious and unknown entities. So more words does not necessarily mean a better filing. Apparently not in this case. So as you can tell, uh, neither of the two tries at filing this case actually went well for Team Trump. But of course, that was clear from the very first sentence of Judge Middlebrook's ruling on Thursday night regarding his order on sanctions as sought by Hillary Clinton and the other defendants. Here's how it starts. Quote, this case should never have been brought. Its inadequacy as a legal claim was evident from the start. No reasonable lawyer would have filed it. Intended for a political purpose, none of the counts of the amended complaint stated a cognizable legal claim. 
31 individuals and entities were needlessly harmed in order to dishonestly advance a political narrative, writes the judge, a continuing pattern of misuse of the courts by Mr. Trump and his lawyers undermines the rule of law, portrays judges as partisans, and diverts resources from those who have suffered actual legal harm. I previously granted defendant Charles Dolan's motion for sanctions brought pursuant to federal court uh, to federal rule of civil procedure 11. Now before me is a motion seeking sanctions brought by 18 other defendants upon consideration of the motion response and reply for the reasons that follow. And also for those stated in my previous order, sanctions are awarded. The judge then uses some 46 pages to simply disembowel Donald oh, Trump oh boy. and his attorney here, Alina Haba, for wasting everyone's time as they paraded before the Fox News and Newsmax cameras in uh, the pages of Donald Trump's dumb social media site to make their ridiculous claims and no doubt raise all kinds of money for themselves in the bargain. Here we are confronted with a lawsuit that should never have been filed, he wrote, which was completely frivolous, both factually and legally, and which was brought in bad faith for an improper purpose. Mr. Trump, uh, the judge writes, is a prolific and sophisticated litigant who is repeatedly using the courts to seek revenge on political adversaries. He is the mastermind of strategic abuse of the judicial process, and he cannot be seen as a litigant blindly following the advice of a lawyer. He knew full well the impact of his actions. As such, I find that sanctions should be imposed upon Mr. Trump and his lead counsel, Ms. Haba. I find that the pleadings here were abusive litigation tactics. This is scathing. This is a federal court judge. I didn't realize you could do sanctions on a litigant who's not a lawyer. I thought it could only be like court sanctions for a lawyer, but they're sanctioning Trump, too. Yeah, because he was not following his, uh, you know, some bad advice from attorneys. This was his idea. Uh, I find that the pleadings were abusive litigation tactics. The complaint and amended complaint were drafted to advance a political narrative not to address legal harm caused by any defendant. So the judge goes on and on with this, citing specific examples of this 189-page, 819-paragraph suit making outrageous claims against various defendants without ever actually supporting any of them, often uh, not even naming who is actually responsible for this harm uh, before the uh, scathing order from Judge Middlebrooks uh, concludes, for the foregoing reasons and having carefully considered the record, the written submissions of the parties and applicable law, it is hereby ordered and adjudged that defendant's joint motion for sanctions is granted. Plaintiff Donald J. Trump and plaintiff's lead attorney, Alina Haba and Haba Madeo and Associates, are jointly and severely liable for $937,989.39. 39 cents off of a $1 million Uh, fine? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, Signed in chambers at West Palm Beach, Florida, this 19th day of January, 2023, Donald M. Middlebrooks, U.S. District Judge. Ouch. Ouch. So Trump and his dumb lawyer... 
uh, now must pay almost $1 million in sanctions for even bringing this dumb case at all that has been entirely thrown out. Twice, in fact. This was, after all, don't forget, this was the case that was finally, finally going to be Donald Trump's triumphant comeuppance uh, to all those folks who done him wrong over their concerns about his 2016 election. He was finally going to hold them all accountable. All those folks who connived to pretend that he might have colluded with a foreign country to win his election and only because they were sore losers who wanted to embarrass him and, quote, orchestrated uh, a malicious conspiracy to disseminate patently false and injurious information about Donald J. Trump and his campaign, all in the hopes of destroying his life his political career, and rigging the 2016 presidential election in favor of Hillary Clinton. As he tried to claim. Also, remember, uh, James Comey, uh, then the director of the FBI, was said to have been fired by Donald Trump, remember this, because he treated his unfair treatment of poor Hillary Clinton. Remember that? Now, of course, they're saying that this was somehow part of uh, Comey's attempt to steal the election in favor of Hillary Clinton. The dude can't keep his story straight, seems to me. <laughs> well, consistency intellectually was never his strong suit. So anyway, uh, no, Donald Trump is not yet going to jail. He has not yet had any criminal charges yet brought against him personally. Of course, his company was found guilty recently, the Trump Organization of 70 counts, 17 counts of fraud. Only his uh, uh, chief financial officer went to uh, jail for about five months. He'll probably be out in three. The company itself was found guilty of 17 counts of fraud. And yet uh, they were only fined about uh, $1.6 million because for some reason <clears throat> that's the maximum fine you get when you uh, your company in New York in state charges and you are found guilty of fraud 17 times. Uh, but in any event, uh, so he has not had those criminal charges yet personally, but those, I believe, are coming soon as well. In the meantime, he's got yet Donald Trump does got yet another million dollar sanction uh, against him and his lawyer, Alina Haba, whose career as any kind of legitimate attorney, I suspect, is now just about completely over. Mm -hmm. Unless Trump wants to himself bring her along for any more of these excellent cases on his behalf. Well, they are very entertaining. They are. It's working out great. She's obviously wonderful at it. <laughs> and by the way, as noted, this was the second time that Middle Brooks has actually sanctioned uh, Haba in the uh, in the Clinton lawsuit. The first time was a $50,000 order sought by uh, just one of the defendants, Charles Dolan. The uh, new round of sanctions was sought by the remaining defendants. In the, uh, in the new order, by the way, Hillary Clinton herself got the biggest award of the fees for a single defendant. Well, that's she, ironic. She got $172,000. <laughs> I'm sure that Trump is very happy about that, too. That's right. Trump was just ordered to write a check to Hillary Clinton for $172,000. Man, I wish the dude would sue me. <laughs> I could use the money. 
Okay, anyway, uh, hopefully that will hold you over for the moment until the real charges come down. And it may not be long. Uh, in just a few days, by the way, January 24, Tuesday, there will be a hearing in Georgia in Fulton County Superior Court on whether the special grand jury's report there in the investigation being brought by Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis, there'll be a hearing on whether that report will be made public in which the special grand jury may or may not, we don't know, have recommended con criminal conspiracy charges against Donald Trump and his band of merry election fraudsters from uh, Rudy Giuliani to who knows, even uh, L Senator Lindsey Graham could be named. We don't know. Or maybe they're all off the hook from the special grand jury. Again, we don't know. But the special grand jury was looking at all of their attempts to strong arm Georgia state officials into stealing the election that Joe Biden won in the state uh, in favor of Donald Trump, who, by the way, lost. Disagree, Mr. Trump? Sue me. Uh, please. Anyway, in fact, you know, so we don't know yet what the special grand jury actually recommended, nor whether their report will or won't be made public at this point. Despite all of that, Willis can, when and if she likes, whenever she likes. She can bring the matter to a regular grand jury now. She can do that right now, if she likes, to ask them uh, to bring indictments. Special grand juries in Georgia don't bring indictments. They just recommend them. A regular grand jury, a regular sitting grand jury would do that. She does, uh, D.A. Willis does not have to wait for the court's ruling on, uh, on releasing the special grand jury's report. Uh, in what I have always predicted, or thought at least, was likely to be the first case to come down against Trump himself, or at least the easiest and most likely uh, to result in indictments. So we shall see. Popcorn at the ready. I'm sure Donald Trump will handle it all very well <laughs> when and if it happens. But uh, anyway... Uh, you're welcome. I, I hope you enjoy. It worked well for me. I, I feel good about that uh, case. Anyway, for now, uh, back to some real issues regarding our democracy, as opposed to the fantastical made up ones in Donald Trump's sick brain. Quick break. And we're back with some news on the right wing attempt now to push back at the citizens ballot initiative process now that it's seen as being more and more uh, successful in allowing we the people to approve critical measures in states, especially so-called red states, where these sorts of things have been blocked for so long by far-right gerrymandered state legislatures. That's straight ahead with my guest from the Progressive Ballot Initiative Strategy Center. I'm Brad Friedman, and you're listening to The Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad here at the Bradcast and Bradblog.com. We fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. Please help us continue that fight over your public airwaves by stopping by Bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. on in 
Indeed. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. In 2022, according to Ballotpedia, voters in 38 states decided on 140 statewide ballot measures. They approved 96 of them while rejecting 44. In other words, more than two-thirds of those statewide ballot measures were approved by voters last year. Voters had their voices heard on everything from abortion rights to abortion restrictions, from the legalization of marijuana to restrictions on or expansion of gun safety laws, to changes in income taxes, rules that would expand or restrict voting itself, and even measures that would make changes to the state ballot initiative process itself, in most cases making it more difficult to adopt statewide ballot measures into law or state constitutions. At least that was what was on the ballot. The voters did not necessarily like that idea. The statewide ballot initiatives process and exercise its supporters regard as direct democracy for the citizenry has been around since the great state of Oregon first adopted the practice back in 1904, even as many believe it first began in California. Hey, don't blame us. By 2021, Ballotpedia reports 26 states allowed initiative and or veto referendum processes at the state level. In 2022, voters expanded Medicaid. Finally, in South Dakota, legalized recreational marijuana in places like Missouri and enshrined the right to an abortion in Michigan. Such ballot initiatives have become a popular tactic to sidestep lawmakers in order to change policy in states dominated by one party, usually the GOP. That, according to NPR last month, and that has now led to pushback from state lawmakers. Since 2018, in my old home state, the now seemingly ruby-red state of Missouri, voters have approved ballot initiatives to raise the minimum wage from $7.85 to $12, to expand Medicaid, and last year, as you heard, to legalize marijuana, all stuff that had little or no chance of being adopted in the gerrymandered, right-leaning state legislature under a Republican governor. So in 2022, Missouri lawmakers responded by introducing more bills to restrict constitutional amendments than any other state. Missouri's new Republican state Senate Majority Leader Cindy O'Loughlin told NPR, quote, I think the recent passage of recreational marijuana, which, you know, I oppose, she said, maybe indicates it's a little too easy to get things through the initiative process. Really? Why, Cindy? Because it was something you opposed? Had the measure been a successful statewide ban of all abortion rights? Would, would you have seen the initiative process as a little too easy in that case? Or perhaps since your party controls the state legislature and governor's mansion, you're able to get most of what you want done at the legislative level. The backlash against the initiative process from lawmakers really accelerated in 2021 and 2022, according to Kelly Hall. She's the executive director with the Fairness Pro uh, Project, a group which claims success in 31 of the 33 left-leaning ballot initiatives that it supported since 2016. But at the same time, there has been an increase in the number of legislative bills to tweak to usually restrict the initiative process from 33 in 2017 to more than 100, 
over the past two years, according to the Ballot Initiative Strategy Center, a group which provides research and support to groups promoting ballot measures. Now, we've been reporting in recent days on the GOP domination of the great state of Ohio, where their Republican governor, Mike DeWine, recently won his reelection and his party expanded their supermajority in both chambers of the legislature. Nonetheless, just after last November's election, Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose, yes, a Republican, along with Republican State Rep. Brian Stewart, rolled out a resolution that would require all future constitutional amendments to receive a 60 percent supermajority at the polls rather than the current 50 percent. Said LaRose, quote, this is about trying to make the Ohio Constitution less susceptible to special interests. But, of course, LaRose's so-called special interests may be Democratic voters' heroes of human rights and freedoms in the Buckeye State, and the only way for now to see some popular progressive ideas moved forward. The move in Ohio comes as advocates for abortion rights, legal marijuana use, and critically redistricting reform are all gearing up to put their issues on the ballot in Ohio in 2023 and 2024. Ah, those special interests. I get it now. Katie Shanahan with the Equal Districts Coalition, a group that opposes party ger partisan gerrymandering in Ohio, told NPR, quote, What's clear here is that this is an effort to block the people of Ohio's ability to amend our Constitution and to ensure that we can enshrine rights and protections for the people that obviously Ohio Republicans don't want us to have. Well, good news for Ms. Shanahan, for now at least, in December, GOP lawmakers in Ohio failed to pass the resolution to raise the vote threshold for constitutional amendments before the end of the lame duck session. However, they say they will try again in 2023. In 2022, voters affirmed the right to an abortion or rejected restrictions to it in every single state where it was on the ballot. That included states like Kentucky and Kansas, where Republicans control the legislature. Chris Melody Fields Figueredo of the Ballot Initiative Strategy Center said, quote, while an issue may be couched as partisan, when we actually put them before voters, they transcend those party lines. Of course, that would be exactly why some lawmakers want to make it harder to put those issues before voters or at least make it more difficult for them to approve those measures. In fact, changes to the process could make future wins on issues like abortion and, frankly, everything else less likely. The tallies in some of those successful votes regarding abortion rights last year, well, they fell short of the 60 percent threshold that many Republican lawmakers are now seeking for constitutional amendments. Joining us now is Chris Melody Fields Figueredo of the Ballot Initiative Strategy Center, where she serves as uh, where she has served as executive director since 2018. The group, according to their website, quote, leverages ballot measures across the U.S. as part of a larger movement to strengthen democracy in order to move towards racial equality, build and transform power, and galvanize a new progressive base. Chris Melody Fields Figueredo, thank you for joining us on the broadcast. And by the way, congrats, I believe, for having the longest name of any guest that we have ever had on the program. 
Oh, it's an honor to accept that award, <laughs> and thank you so much for having me, Brad. You bet. I uh, I want to talk about the backlash that we're beginning to see against these ballot measures around the country, uh, and the, and the threat that may pose to years of of what many describe as direct democracy through the initiative process, but. Before we get to that, maybe not as good news, let's take a moment at least to look at what seems to have been a pretty extraordinary number of successes last year for a range of ballot initiatives, uh, as mentioned during my intro. What stands out to you and your group as far as successes last year, either uh, you know specific successes or the, the broader success of ballot initiatives overall? Well, I mean, you said it in your intro, 6 and 0 for protecting the right to have an abortion or ensuring that there is reproductive freedom. That was a huge moment last year and a trend that I know is going to continue as we look at 2023 and 24, where we really see in many states that our elected officials are out of touch with the people. We've continued to see this trend that we've been seeing since 2016 to raise the minimum wage, Mm -hmm. expand Medicaid, uh, Medicaid, uh, legalize or decriminalize um, uh, medical marijuana. And then there were some really transformational um, things that happened last year that I'm really curious as if it will continue as we see what comes to the ballot in 2023 and 2024. States like Oregon that mm-hmm. guaranteed the right uh, to universal health care. Um, also, to really address uh, gun safety mm. um, and and uh, and this epidemic that we have around gun violence, so you know, there's a lot to be excited about. Mm-hmm. And and most states where they try to limit the ability of the people to bring forth issues to their community through the ballot measure process, in most cases, those were rejected in the states. So. There's a lot of opportunity uh, ahead of us, Mm -hmm. and this is something we've been seeing since 2016. And to what you were just laying out in your introduction, we are seeing a direct backlash to what is happening across the country of progressive issues, Mm -hmm. or quote-unquote progressive issues, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Winning when they're put before the voters, and we're not seeing those those changes, which the people say are urgent and important through our representatives in government, right? whether it's at city council, whether it's at the state legis- uh, legislative level, mm-hmm. and even in the federal government, too. Um, and I think that's really what's at stake here, is whether our democracy represents and is addressing the key issues that people are feeling in their daily lives. You know, as I'm uh, looking at this and I'm, I'm looking back over the, the, the measures that were successful uh, last year and in recent years, and you hear some of the Republicans complaining about so-called special interests, some of their focuses on, uh, you know, a- abortion rights, they may oppose that, uh, gun safety rules. A lot of this, I- I'm wondering, and I, I would love to hear your thoughts, Chris, um, Uh, The first uh, that I've really begun to hear sort of an organized pushback against these ballot initiatives has sort of come along with the success of some of these initiatives in recent years to bring independent redistricting commissions. Uh, Is it is it a coincidence that, uh, you know, these measures that could actually strike at the very power 
that some of these legislatures have to prevent any of these ideas, the ideas that must come in via the ballot initiative? Do, do you think it's a coincidence? Does it have anything to do with perhaps the end of their ability to gerrymander in the same way? I mean, you just have to connect the dots, Brad. And I think this is ultimately the question that is before us right now in our democracy. Mm -hmm. Is it of, for, and by the people? And who ultimately has the power to make decisions for all of us, Mm -hmm. right? That's what's at stake right now, um, is whether we will have an inclusive, representative democracy that speaks and listens to, right, to the the concerns of of Americans, Mm -hmm. you know? Abortion is highly popular. Mm -hmm. You can see poll after poll after poll. That is an incredible reproductive rights and freedom. It's incredibly popular. Mm -hmm. Addressing the economic issues in our country, like the housing crisis, like wages and benefits, that's incredibly popular. Mm -hmm. That's what the people want. Um, And so it's ultimately this question about power. So you can connect the dots. Mm -hmm. And if we're looking at the ballot initiative process or the initiatives in general, right, as a tool for power in our democracy, then yes, if you are an elected official who does not agree with people who may be your constituents (laughs) and it doesn't fit your agenda, then your next step would be to undermine or weaken the will of the people rather than actually do what I think representatives in government should do is listen to the very constituents Mm -hmm. who may or they may or not may not be a part of their party. But they are the people they represent in their community and ensure that they are addressing the issues that are important to them. So ultimately, this is a power struggle mm-hmm. within this great, huge power struggle we're having right now in the United States and actually globally around the world. I, I want to talk about some of the efforts now to roll back this uh, increasing power to the people, it seems. Uh, it, it, there, there's a difference, is there not, Chris, between uh, citizen-initiated ballot measures and those that are placed on the ballot by state legislatures? What is the difference between the two? And while I know that the rules are, are different in each state, do they both generally operate the same way once uh, one of these measures makes it onto the ballot? Or are there different levels of approval that might be needed uh, for a citizen measure versus a legislative measure on the ballot in each case? So the basic ge- the basic general difference between what we call a legisli- uh, refer- legislative referred mm-hmm. amendment or initiative and a citizen-led me- uh, initiative is, one, it is legislatively referred, mm-hmm. right? The state legislature refers to the ballot something that's either a constitutional amendment, and often uh, uh, that is the case in many states, um, and that doesn't matter if you actually have the citizen-led uh, process, which means people go out into their communities, mm-hmm. gather signatures through petitions to get an issue placed before the ballot. And every state, uh, about half the country, has the citizen-led process has different levels that of signatures mm-hmm. that have to be gathered mm-hmm. in order to place that before the voter, right? That is actually what's at stake right now is this process, the means in which the people, the citizens, have the ability to both qualify and mm-hmm. put something on the ballot, and then after something is qualified, 
to the ballot, mm-hmm. whether it's legislatively or through the citizen-led process, what are the means in which it passes, mm-hmm. right? So what's happening in Ohio, the 60% threshold, which is actually some a major trend that we're seeing all across the country really since 2018. Uh, after states like your former in state, uh, your home, uh, your former mm-hmm. home state of Missouri, which truly is ground zero, mm. if you're looking at all the states across the country of where we have seen the the most and continued attacks on the initiative process, mm-hmm. uh, raising the signature uh, threshold after things like uh, addressing gerrymandering, raising the minimum wage right after that happened, mm-hmm. and in in and also in 2018 in Florida. They uh, returned uh, the voting rights to formerly incarcerated uh, citizens. Yep. We started to see this trend of raising the threshold mm-hmm. um, of signature gathering. Actually, Florida is already the state that has the highest uh, threshold passage mm-hmm. uh, of the country. It's already 60% in that state. The rest of the country has a 50-plus 1% of the vote um, where in order for something to get to pass. And in, if... if- Mm-hmm. Well, if they, if they do if they do succeed in making these changes in some of these states from fifty percent plus one to essentially sixty percent plus one, uh, would mm-hmm. that also apply to the legislatively uh, placed measures, or, or are they only targeting these uh, citizen measures that are on the ballot? So most of the language is is specific to uh, the threshold to pass, and it's often very targeted to constitutional amendments. Right. Uh, And this is where what we're seeing in states like Ohio, where there's already conversations about a constitutional protection to an abortion. Right. Mm -hmm. They're often really focusing on constitutional measures Mm -hmm. where they're trying to sort of get at um, on the citizen led process is actually looking at the qualification process. So how many signatures have to get gathered? Where do those signatures how have to get uh, gathered? Mm-hmm. What is uh, what are the restrictions um, that need the, around who can gather those signatures? Mm-hmm. I mean, Missouri again is like ground zero of like really focusing on that citizen-led process and creating uh, more barriers for citizen-led gather uh, signature gathering in order to happen. Um, that you know that is often where the, that is really focused on, mm-hmm. and then you know that other layer is okay. Now it's on the ballot, either from the legislature or um, the citizen-led process, mostly focusing on constitutional amendments to raise the threshold in order for things to be passed. What? By and large, we've seen when it goes to the ballot before people, they overwhelmingly reject attempts to make that threshold go up. Now, to be fair, uh, some of the folks making this argument to uh, raise the threshold either for getting the ballot, uh, getting the uh, measure on the ballot at all, or the passage of the ballot, they say there should be a higher bar when we're talking about writing something into the constitutional amendment, which is, you know, certainly more difficult to to change or or get rid of later. Should there be a higher bar? Is there a justification? for a higher bar, a 60% supermajority passage when you're talking about amending a state constitution, Chris? Is a supermajority required passage in a state legislature every single time that a constitutional change is made? I mean, this Mm. is the question, is who gets to make that decision? Mm Mm-hmm. 
that's really what, what what's that question. And there should be parameters or guidance, right, uh, in general, right? I think, you know, folks in California understand when you have low thresholds, specifically for a signature gathering, mm-hmm. that often makes it a very long ballot in a state like California, yes. right? Yeah. Um, and those are important things to, to consider, right? Um, but, you know, I think ultimately what I think a lot of folks fail to understand, there's already an incredibly difficult process in place before something even gets to the ballot. Mm. It's not only the signature gathering, it's the ballot language. It's the, con- I mean, these these often go already go through court uh, challenges and have to be approved in, in multiple ways. So I think ultimately what folks are forgetting is we already have a pretty arduous process in the first place before we get some really fundamentally, um, you know, big um, challenging um, issues before before a state constitution. I mean, w- with Florida, I mean, that took seven, eight years before uh, the Amendment 4 was to the ballot, is, and, and that's because they had to go through a very long process and think about what the opportunity was and whether they could go through that process mm-hmm. to make sure not only it qualified for the ballot, but it also won. Yeah, and uh, they they certainly don't make it easy out there. And after the passage of that, which would you know uh, allow uh, former felons to be able to vote again, they went out of their way to not only undermine mm-hmm. the ballot initiative that was passed, but to make it more difficult in the future to pass yep. uh, future measures. A- at least, you know, one of the things that were on uh, ballots around the country this year were actually initiative measures to change the initiative process. And uh, in a lot of cases, voters said, no, we're fine as is. We don't want to require a 60% vote on ballot initiatives, for example, in Arkansas. Now, meanwhile, out here, uh, Chris, in California, you know, we've had this sort of direct democracy for a very long time. It does sort of feel like out here that it has been captured by corporate interests in many ways. Uh, Why is that? That. Is it because it's such a large state where the process of getting a measure on the ballot is so can be so expensive that it really takes a corporation in many cases to get it done? How do you explain what our problem is out here in California and how could we fix it? I mean, I think you sort of laid it out there. Is It has really become a tool for corporations and, and the, the process itself has been, you know, Mm-hmm. become an industry within within the, the state of, of California. And that's a very important case study to look at is what happened from, you know, the birth or the idea. Mm-hmm. The idea came out of California. South Dakota was the first state to actually do it. Mm. But what happened right in the beginning of why the initiative process or, or direct democracy became this idea in the first place was to address the stranglehold that the railroad barons had on state legislatures, mm-hmm. right? Like, that's where the birth of the idea came from, because corporations and special interests controlled state legislatures yep. across the West, right? And now what we've seen in a state like California is <laughs> the the industry in which <laughs> we w- it was trying to combat, combat mm-hmm. um, the ability uh, to, to, to write law that has overtaken it. And I think that's really an important case study. And for us to understand now, 
the impact of other decisions that courts have made, like Citizens United, which is leading to more and more of the corporatization mm-hmm. of ballot measures across the country. The cost of ballot measures is getting more and more expensive. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, what was originally created in what we call a tool of the people is now at risk of becoming the tool for the wealthy and few. In the meantime, there are still about uh, a half or so of the states that don't even have that initiative process. Mm-hmm. Uh, does your group, the Ballot Initiative Strategy Center, uh, work with uh, states like that? To uh, It's about half the states, I think, which don't mm-hmm. even have that available to voters. Uh, is that something that you work with with those states? Are you trying to uh, bring direct democracy to all of those states that don't currently have access to it right now? Well, and, by, and by the way, why don't they at this point? Well, that's what I was going to start with. Is okay. We have to ask the question of why. Uh-huh. So when the initiative process was starting to make its way through the state legislative um, process uh, to be created, state legislatures predominantly in the South um, or places with high black populations chose not to move forward with the initiative mm. process because they did not want black voters to have that level of power. Mm-hmm. So even the tool that we created, right, for the people, it wasn't all people, just like our, our mm-hmm. democracy, right, in, in the United States. And I think that's a really important detail that is often forgotten. Mm-hmm. Um, and as an organization like ours, where we center the most impacted uh, people, and often that means black, indigenous Latinx, Asian American, and Pacific Islander, uh, low-income folks, uh, people who have disabilities, right? We work to ensure those people who have been marginalized and excluded get to be a part of this process. Um, That's where we look to states like uh, Mississippi, which the state legislature, uh, the state Supreme Court, knocked down their initiative process. And we're working with groups on the ground to reinstate um, the initiative process there. Mm. But also we have to ask the question of if you you think about some of the states that do not have the initiative process, it's where also states where we have not invested in the infrastructure in many ways. Mm. It's not that the groups don't exist or the people don't exist or shouldn't have it, right? It's also we have not invested in the infrastructure to have a really strong civic engagement in those states. And that, that's been a choice. That's right. It's mm-hmm. been a strategic uh, choice. So you know, we are always open and willing to help support, um, you know, organizations and groups to figure out mm-hmm. if this is a tool that that's right for them. But also we have to think about the larger political analysis in that state and n- not only whether they have the capacity, but where some people may want for these progressive issues, it also could be the reverse effect to also restrict a lot of rights. Um, and, and undermine right. um, a lot of communities. So that's often the question mm-hmm. we ask, right, before. But there are states that are, like, itching. They're seeing what's happening across the country, right? Wisconsin's having this conversation right now. Uh, I know there are, are folks in, in Kentucky that are like, what would it mean for us to have a citizen-led process? So right. I think there are states that are curious, right, uh, about what it would mean to have this tool. <laughs> And we'll and we'll be a, their partners um, to help them figure out is this the right tool and what does it look like for our state. So, from the ballot initiative 
curious states that don't yet have the process. <laughs> Finally, uh, quickly, uh, moving forward, Chris, how endangered is the ballot initiative process in the states that do have it? It's seemingly you know, becoming more and more uh, successful in recent years to back progressive ideas that otherwise stand no chance of passage in so many of our right-leaning, gerrymandered state houses around the country. Should we look at this as an endangered species at this point, or are they just sort of testing the waters as far as uh, how they can uh, begin to roll this process back? Listen, this is the, the, ne- the next big test, and it's happening right now in our democracy. You know, in many ways, ballot measures really after the 2010 uh, census and then where we started to see a huge wave of gerrymandering across the country mm-hmm. became a tool of necessity. Yeah. Where we had trifecta, GOP trifecta states, it became impossible to per, to move any progressive issue or idea that was widely popular uh, in states um, through the state legislative process. And so, you know, many states like in Arizona or in Missouri um, looked at this tool that they have, and it became an idea of not only to pass policy, but also actually build power in their states and shift power mm-hmm. um, in their states. Um, and we are, and we've been successful, really. You know, 2016 was like the, the banner year where we passed four minimum wage um, initiatives across the state, and it's just grown since there by the, uh, the uh, independent redistricting, by, you know, improving our democracy, um, addressing things um, in our criminal legal system, right? We've just mm-hmm. seen... Since 2016, these major issues that are critically important to people, right, now move through this process, and so now we're seeing the reverse effect, right? Yep. So this is this is the ne- this is the great the next big battle, and it's happening in real time, and depending on on what the Supreme Court says um, with the the case, um, the Moore case, um, that they heard. Moore v. Harper, independent state legislature theory. Yep. That exactly. (laughs) Yeah. That, that could undermine. Yeah. Completely undermine, um, direct democracy as well, uh, as well. So, you know, what we've been seeing in, in the United States is, you know, every lever of power and we, you know, just dwindled and, and, you know, we are, in a fight um, of whether democracy continues to exist as we know it in the United States, right? Well, I'm, and, and so now we're, we've seen this tool that it has been used to, to, to strengthen our democracy and, and address issues. Now we're seeing the, the attacks there. So well, it, it is, it's, a, it's a critically important um, issue that, that we're, we are already facing, you know, mm-hmm. state legislative sessions have already started. We're already seeing... Uh, the backlash after what happened in 2022. Keep up your critically important work. Let us know how we can support your efforts. Chris Melody Fields Figueredo is the executive director of the Ballot Initiative Strategy Center. You can find and support their work at ballot.org. That's easy to remember. You can find them on Twitter at Ballot Strategy. And you can find Chris on Twitter as well. Uh, A great Twitter name. You'll find her as simply Fieldsy. Chris Melody Fields Figueredo, great to have you here today. Really appreciate your time. Uh, We are grateful for the fight you are waging there at the uh, uh, Ballot Initiative Strategy Center. Keep up the good work. Let us know how we can help in the uh, the, uh, coming days. 
Thank you so much for the opportunity, Brad. You bet. And, you know, just one more point. We yeah. mentioned there the Moore v. Harper case uh, that, you know, says the that Supreme the, Court. Yeah, the Supreme Court says the Constitution allows only the legislature to make election related laws and rules and so forth. Not the secretary of state, not the governor can't you know veto what the legislature says. Uh, the state courts have no say. The state constitution has no say. And yes, voter uh, initiatives that have been approved by the voters, ballot initiatives. Those will be completely tossed out as well if the court goes along with this insane theory, as some fear that they just might. We'll find out next June. Case has already been heard. I'm concerned. It will be a strike at the heart of pretty much democracy itself, uh, like most of these attacks on democracy have been. What jumped out at me was she asked, you know, we've got to build capacity in these states that don't have these ballot initiative processes. So I think that gives people a place to focus on for where they can help. It does. And they can also focus on California and try to not let what happened here with the corporate takeover of this process Uh, happen in their own home states. All right, we got to get out. My thanks again to Chris Melody Fields Figueredo of the Ballot Initiative Strategy Center and to Desi Doyen, our producer, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Share it with everyone you know, you love, and you hate. And do remember, we are 100% listener-supported, so please feel free to hit one of those donate buttons at bradblog.com. You can also drop me an email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks, the Twitters, and the Mastodons, you will find me at the Brad Blog. We will see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener supported thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com slash donate.